0: Took my daughters to the library the other day. It was for a for a science program. It was good. They sat in a big classroom with a bunch of other kids. They got to learn about blood. You Got to share their COVID germs with kids from all over the county. And uh, it was it was uh, it was educational. science It was paid for by the state. I I appreciated it. Um, I was glad it was a good find on Joanna's part. Uh, so I did though. When I was walking in, I saw there was they have these giant windows out front and. Uh, they often have sort of displays of books or art projects or things up there. And they had this, this thing, I guess they'd done it for Valentine's Day, but it was a giant heart made up of a lot of little hearts, each one maybe the size of a, a hand turkey, roughly. And they were all different colors. And they they had been arranged in, you know, they, they had been put up individually to make up the shape of the larger heart, but on each of the individual hearts. A, a child, based on the handwriting, a child had written the name of a book that he or she loved. Right, where the red fern grows, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I don't know if that's anyone's favorite, but you know, there were there were some Harry Potter up there. There was some Percy Jackson. There was, um, was some Madeline Lingle. There were a bunch of names I didn't recognize. But at any rate, there were you know all these these nice n- names of books up there. It was uh, it was good to see, sort of heartwarming. And then in the corner, you know, sort of right at the edge of the heart, I noticed, I noticed a little blue heart, and instead of the name of a beloved children's book, <laughs> someone had just written "I love horror!" exclamation point. And I thought that sort of sort of sours the mood. It's a little—I mean, in context, it makes enough sense, but it's it just <laughs> it just just leaves a kind of a funny taste in the mouth uh, in, the, in the company of all those pleasant children's. Titles. And then on the way out of the library, when my, my kids had done the science activity, my daughter ran up and said, Oh, let me find my heart. Hey, there it is. <laughs> <And> she pointed <laughs> to the little blue heart that said, I love horror. And I thought, Of course it's my fucking kid. So this put me in mind of I, I heard uh not long ago some podcast hosts talking about the poem Good Bones. Now, Good Bones is a it's a it was a, a Poem by Maggie Smith, American Poets, went super, super viral and uh, got passed all around the internet. And uh, she, I think she published a book, a collection called Good Bones, and then published a whole other collection. She kind of built a whole brand off of it. Uh, Dan Coast did kind of an interesting uh, article in Slate about how that poem had affected her life and maybe it had become something of an albatross, though, you know, honestly, like most of us would would happily take an albatross like that it's a it's a it's a good poem I I think good poems is I think good bones is well done I think it's a lot of poets privately uh sort of shit on it but I think it's I think it does what it does quite well it's it's uh it, it's approachable it's uh charming it has a, a kind of a recognizable human voice it's uh, it's something you can relate to. It's about raising children. It's funny. It's sad. It's touching, and it has a, a really well managed ending. You know, I think I think it's 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 an accomplished little poem. Now, these podcast hosts, they had never somehow they'd never encountered it before. One of them had just read it for the first time the other day, and then she was reading it to the other host, who also had never read it, and they were just talking about how great it was. They just thought, like, "Wow, what a poem!" You know that, now that's poetry. None of this, this, this nonsense we're used to. This is, that's a real poem. And I thought, yeah, that is, that is pretty well done. But there was a line in it that I heard for the first time. I'd never really heard it before. There's a line about halfway through. It's in her to be sure paragraph, so to speak. It's a short poem, but she, you know, she, she says, uh, the world is at least 50% terrible and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. And then she has this little litany of some of the ways in which the world is actually bad she says for every bird there is a stone thrown at a bird and that was the line I heard for the first time I thought huh well wait a minute let's let's think about that for a second for every bird there's a stone thrown at a bird and so I I googled because I didn't know I googled I put in typed into Google how many birds are there in the world so uh, it turns out the answer is 50 billion there are 50 billion birds in the world. And that made me think okay, so I guess that means, you know, if there are 50 billion birds, and I mean, I'm assuming that, like, in a year, because there are going to be birds that live and die every year, that are born and die every year, but I'm assuming in a year, you have 50 billion birds. And for every one of those, there's a stone thrown at a bird. I mean, if a bird's life is, how long is a bird's life? Let's see. How long do birds live? Um, oh man, there's a big range there. How long does the, I like to type complete sentences into Google, because that's, it's a, I just see it as a sign of respect. Assuming it's only one stone per bird's life, I guess that's probably possible. It's 50 billion stones being thrown. But then here is where I started to run into trouble. So I thought like with any with any large scale behavior, there's sort of an 80-20 rule, right? Which we understand to be like 20% of the customers cause 80% of the customer complaints, right? Like 20% of the population commits 80% of the crimes. Yeah, we're, we're sort of familiar with this. Similarly, like you know, 20% of the, the, the workforce in any given company is gonna perform like 80% of the work, right? It's just in terms of efficiency for good or ill, this is sort of how pe- things tend to break down. So it's not that every, you know, because there are 8 billion people in the world and they're going to be over the course of any bird's life way more birds than people all throughout that bird's life. So, you know, it's not that every person is having to throw several stones at a bird per lifetime, right? Like what would that be like? Eight times six is forty-eight. So, like every person would be throwing six stones in his lifetime at a bird. Uh, I mean that, except that people are live longer than birds, and so really it would be probably a lot more than that. It would be more like if bird the average bird span, bird lifespan is between seabirds live thirty to fifty years, but warblers live you know three to six years. So, so assuming like a human's lifespan is going to encompass the lifespan of anywhere between two and uh, ten or twenty birds. You know, that's, that's, you know, to multiply that by six, and that's, that's still quite a lot of stones per person per lifetime. But of course, most people don't throw any stones at birds, right? Assuming the 80 20 rule, we've actually just got a relatively small percentage of the population throwing almost all of the stones. And here's where it gets really thorny. What that means is that that percentage of the population is probably getting pretty good at throwing stones, right? So you've actually got a lot of very accurate stones being thrown at birds, meaning that a lot of these stones are making contact, and presumably, because a lot of birds are quite small, killing the birds. Now, once you kill a bird, what that means is that that bird is no longer in the is no longer counted as one of the birds who exists. Which means that for every one of the birds that still exists, there's even more stones being thrown. So it turns out that like 12 to 240 stones per per person per lifetime is actually a radical underestimate. Uh, when you look at the the smaller number of people who are actually throwing these stones, it just seemed like there's sort of a bird uh, holocaust going on here. But then I got to the next line, and the next line is even more disturbing, because here's the next line. So, for every bird, there's a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. And I thought, for every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. And I thought, that's, oh, that's terrible. For every loved child, a, a child dies? But then it's not quite that, right? Because we're not talking about accidental deaths. We're not talking about car wrecks or, or even like drive-by shootings that you know accidentally hit a bystander. We're talking about serial killings, right? Because that's what a broken, bagged, and sunk in a lake means. Right? That, that's a, that's, that's a, a, a well-organized premeditated murder. That's a serial killer, yeah? So for every loved child, a child is serial killed. And then I thought, well, now hold on a minute. How many children are there in the world? The World Bank estimates that 25% of the population at any, at any given time is between the ages of 0 and 14, which means you know if the world population is about 8 billion, that means there are 2 billion children. And, you know, just like guessing conservatively, let's just say conservatively, at least half of all children are loved, right? right? It's got to be at least half are loved. Um, because we're not talking about just like they're well-treated, not rich, not you know, nourished properly. This is just loved. And this is loved by anybody because it's it's done in the passive voice, right? For every loved child. So, you know, this is... Th- that means that, like, we're just talking about the kids who are loved by anybody, you know? Like mom, dad, grandma, the mailman, the dog, right? Somebody loves these children. And of course, like, kids are relatively cute and are, you know, we're genetically inclined to love them. And so a kid who nobody loves, I mean, that's... That kid's got to be just just dog shit. That's got to be a terrible kid. And that's, according to Maggie Smith, that's half of kids, right? Because it's half the kids are loved, half of the kids are serial killed. That gives us roughly one billion children being serial killed over every 14 years, right? A billion children over 14 years being killed, presumably, right? And given that three-fifths of all serial killers live in the United States, that means that The serial killers in the United States alone are responsible for six hundred million child murders every fourteen years. So, what are we looking at? Three hundred million child like the population of America is murdered by Americans, serial murdered by Americans every seven years. There's a there's that, that means there's a colossal. Murder tourism industry, and and here's where we run into the same problem with the birds. Like once those children are killed, then the number of loved children, you know, once you take those you know 50 percent of children and you, you serial kill them, then the number of loved children is actually 100 percent, right? Because all the loved children are not killed, and that means we're having to to, to rejigger our numbers. So the num- so the, the the total number of murders is actually way larger. Like think of the rivers of blood think of the just think of the 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 global churnal house that this predicts i mean this is this is a this is like war crimes beyond any scale we've ever encountered i mean the holocaust uh there were like what like 11 million people murdered in hitler's camps stalin murdered like 20 million we're talking about a billion every 14 years and then i remember the poem's ending right which is any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole, chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. You could make this place beautiful? No, you couldn't. This are, these bricks are baked with the bones of children. This, is, this whole place is, is, is soaked in blood. This is a nightmare. Anyone who could po- possibly switch from the subject of a billion children being murdered and sunk at a lake to uh, a cute metaphor about real estate and how we should all look on the bright side, that, that's, that person's gotta be a psychopath. Maggie Smith is an absolute stone-cold psychopath and statistically speaking, also a serial killer. So I just got back in town, got back in town, saw the girls, gave them little, little airport presents, got them, got them fed and put to bed, caught up with Joanna. And we finished watching this TV series, limited series that we had started, uh, you know, months ago at this point. Uh, It's called Fleischman is in Trouble, it's based on a a novel she read by a, a woman who is a... Uh, Taffy Brodesser-Acker, I think is her name, she wrote profiles of celebrities in uh, GQ or Esquire somewhere for years, some men's magazine, and then uh, quit and a few years later came out with this novel about a man going through a divorce and his friend, the... Woman who uh, wrote profiles of celebrities in some men's magazine, and then uh, had an existential crisis, and ultimately comes out with a novel. So you get the idea. It was uh, so it was a pretty good series. Had some interesting stuff in it. Um, good, uh, good cast for the most part, and a, lo- a lot of like delightful actors playing insufferable characters, which is okay, which I don't mind so much. Uh, some some <laughs> some class stuff that just like just. You know, God, God love the New Yorkers. I know, I know a fair number of New Yorkers listen to this podcast and, and, and God bless all of you. Not that you believe in God, (laughs) but boy, uh, it, it is, it, let me just say, it is possible to depict you on television in a way that makes one think there may be problems with, with the larger category of New Yorkers. Not fair, I'm sure, of course, but, but boy, this show was not good advertising for the for the fundamental more moral character of people who live in New York City. Not, not even People who live in New York City. People who prosper in New York City. I should say. At any rate, my favorite character among all of the uh, TV show characters, because I didn't see, I didn't read the book, was Lizzie Kaplan's character. She was. She played the 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 author's stand-in for herself, or she's the the friend who. A uh, friend of the divorced guy who used to write profiles of celebrities in some men's magazine and then uh, has an existential... Quits the magazine, has an existential crisis. In book, during the book, during the movie or the TV show, she's having her existential crisis. Lizzie, Lizzie Kaplan is, as always, uh, brilliant and funny and uh, poignant. Very expressive face, very memorable eyes, and uh, a charming delivery of her lines. So I, I really liked her. I liked I liked her character, even if I didn't admire her character. And she's, you know, she's this fundamentally depressed housewife who's totally disillusioned with her existence and knows that she's extremely fortunate, knows that her husband loves her, that her, her children are treasures, that she uh, is, is blessed in, 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 in almost every way that she could, she could wish for. And yet she is fundamentally unhappy I, I liked her. I liked her. I liked watching her. I liked following her story much more than any of the other characters' stories. And uh, at the end of the series, she she gives this description to her friend, the divorce guy, of the the book she's going to write, the novel she's going to write. And of course, the novel she's going to write is the novel that then inspires the TV show that we are watching in that moment, where everything she's describing, including the way, including the way the book ultimately ends, it, it all lines up with the show. There's this perfect parallel between the two. There's an analog relationship between the two. Uh, and then she she has this wonderful epiphany at the end, <laughs> where she realizes that her unhappiness, Is really nobody's fault and instead of feeling miserable with her life she should feel grateful and happy and then she does feel grateful and happy and she goes home to her husband and and hugs him and cherishes him and tells her tells him that she's sorry and he very lovingly forgives her and, and takes her back in and uh, and then everything's fine. a couple things bothered me about this ending. <laughs> one being that the epiphany is is basically a sort of a nonsense finger snap. It is a psychological deus ex machina whereby the precise logic that had so previously ag- that had so previously so aggravated her disillusionment, right? The idea that that it was so unwarranted um suddenly becomes a a frictionless solution to it. The other thing that bothered me about it I think is that obviously obviously the the other the other and maybe I would say the real redemption of the whole her whole storyline, right? Her whole sense of her her crisis, her sense of disillusionment, her misery, her failure to feel uh, gratitude and happiness. Uh, all of all of those problems, the real redemption for all of that we we have to remember that redemption specifically means the paying off. you know you redeem tickets at an arcade by cashing them in for prizes, right? You redeem money for goods. right Redemption involves the uh, the price, right? Something is turned in for its value, yeah, so What redeems, what the real redemption of this character's misery is that ultimately she will write this novel, which will be a a dazzling success, right? That's the actual redemption, is that everything in this world, the world of the story, is paid for, is covered, is made okay, and even more than okay. Rather than being a period of unhappiness, it's, it's a period of Good fortune. It's a it's an asset, rather than being a deficiency. All of this time wandering around New York, smoking cigarettes, and despising her husband. All of this is actually, uh, in in the end, is is not only uh, okay. It's not only come to an end. It's actually worth it because of what it is redeemed for, or redeemed by. And, you know. Watching this, I couldn't help but think of an experience from my trip to Atlanta. Um, while there, I went to mass for the first time in a few years. It's been a little while. Mass is, of course, the, the Catholic word for the, the church service that you go to every week. It's a, it's a particular thing. It's not just gathering and, and having a meeting and a guy preaches something. It's uh, it, There is a particular series of actions that have to occur. There's a liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, and both of these things have to take place along with a number of other rites and rituals. Uh, so we went, went went to that big, big cathedral, lots of priests, lots of high ceremony. And it, it was beautiful. You know, it was a beautiful place. And there is a beauty to some of the ceremony. And of course, this is, you know, I've been to Mass hundreds and hundreds of times in my life and I I know it pretty well but it had been a while and I think it landed a little differently on me this time and in particular the sermon landed differently on me in the sermon the uh, the priest the priest presented this really really long elaborate well I shouldn't say elaborate, Belabored is probably is probably a more accurate term. This belabored uh, metaphor that involved traveling through the Atlanta airport. If you don't know the Atlanta airport, it is indeed the busiest airport in the world. It is uh, in the world, in the country at least. Maybe the world. It is pretty fucking busy. Um, it's also enormous. There is an internal train system just to get you from gate to gate because it's so big. And if you have passed through it, you know that there's there is a kind of an illusory quality to, you know, you passing through one hall and one gate and one you know, one atrium after another, and feeling like you've gotten closer only to discover that you're still miles away <laughs> from your destination, within just within this airport. You know, there's row after row of Hudson Newses and uh, food courts and you know one gate could easily be another could easily be another it's it's um if everything weren't labeled with letters and numbers it would be uh it might all just be a hall of mirrors and he he describes walking through the airport and then coming to uh, when you are when you are arriving coming to this massive escalator it is very big uh, I think it's probably and I, it was, there's an escalator in the the Washington D.C. Uh, metro that is very very long, but I think this one might be longer. Uh, there's a very big ugly mural from when the Olympics were held in Atlanta that you get to you get to take in at <laughs> at length as you go up this escalator, and then at the top there's the the people waiting to receive their uh, arriving parties. He, he built up to this moment when you arrive at the top of the escalator. And of course, every single person in the church knew where this was going from pretty early on in this sermon. We all knew that finally, ultimately, the arrival at the top of the escalator was going to be a symbol for an image of uh, the arrival of the soul in heaven and the the welcoming party of all of the the souls um, dearly departed of all of the family members and and friends who have who uh, predeceased one so that you you're greeted by all those who loved you before uh, and reunited and of course they they're standing up they're just like the USO just like the Just like this limousine drivers holding up their signs and their balloons for you. Uh, And how lovely and how happy. And this was, as you might imagine, fucking infuriating to hear. Almost as infuriating as hearing that everything in your life, your work, your memories, your experience, your relationships, every aspect of your life, your senses... Your hopes, your ambitions, your failures, your embarrassments, your triumphs, your accidents. Every moment of your life, every grain and fiber of your life, all of it adds up. Although the total of all of it is negligible, is effectively nothing compared to your existence in the afterlife. In heaven, you are far more, immeasurably more, than you were on earth. And you might as well forget everything on earth. That is to say that life is redeemed by the afterlife would be an understatement, right? Everything you you know—it's—it's it's not just Virgil saying someday this pain will be useful to you. It's not just Taffy brought us Acker saying, uh, you know, someday this existential crisis will will pay off in a uh, a best-selling uh, straight to Hulu uh, adaptation novel for you. But the redemption, the the payoff, the epiphany, the revelation will so out way, what came before, that you could almost forget everything that came before. The, ha- the promise of that, that we receive in life is so much more than answered by the afterlife that you might as well never have existed. Your existence in life might as well just be a shadow, might as well be like the, you know like the lives of the Greek shades uh, washed down with the, with the, with the water of Lethe and forgotten. And I don't know if I've been that angry at a priest since I graduated from Catholic school. But, uh, but thankfully on the airplane flying home, I, um, I picked up uh, Teatro Grotesco, the, um, the Thomas Ligotti, collection that I got for Brian and me because the first story in it was Purity, which we already discussed. And I, I, I liked it and I was sort of intrigued by it. And I was intrigued by things I'd heard about Legati elsewhere. So I, I, I kept reading. I read a couple more stories and on the plane I read this, one of these stories called Sideshow has a, it's made up of a series of, of short shorts. Just stories that just, you know, maybe two pages. And the best of these by my lights was uh, called the malignant matrix, and all of them are sort of they're sort of like um, joke vignettes that have uh, <laughs> cryptic but evocative titles. You know, we never quite hear what the malignant matrix is, but it, you know, it seems in some uh, in some way to to pick up on a on an undertone in the book in the in the story itself. So I that, I, I really liked this story. And here's the basic gist of it. The gist of it is that the narrator is a, some sort of correspondent for um, scientists, for for um, the most elite and advanced scientists and philosophers and academics of his time. He is sort of like a, he's the Soren Wheeler of his uh, fictional sci-fi horror age. Um, and he takes notes from all of the great scientists and all of their new discoveries. He's He's appraised of everything that they um prize? Do we say apprised? I should look that up. Here's another one of my fucking malapropisms. Yeah, keep me apprised. That's right, it is a prize. Oh wow, yeah, so we got a few words, right? So we have a praise to assess the value or quality of a prize, which is to inform or tell, and we have a prize with a Z with a z which is which is either to appraise with an a i z a i s e or to to value highly also the british <laughs> spell that word the same way as uh, the the word apprise a p p r i s e so um, total chaos anyway uh, the the narrator is kept a prize of uh, of the, the, the leading scientist's latest discoveries. And um, we hear that he gets he gets special news one day. One day I received a very special communication. This is straight from the story The Malignant Matrix. One day I received a very special communication whereby I learned that an astounding and quite unexpected breakthrough had been achieved. The culmination, it appeared, of many years of intense scientific and metaphysical study this breakthrough the communication informed me concerned nothing less than the discovery of the true origins of all existential phenomena both physical and metaphysical the very source as I understood the claims being made of existence in the broadest possible sense and he's given he's given very explicit instructions to come receive this news at a specific time in a specific location so he goes on to say he follows the directions he, he goes uh, uh, precisely to the place that is, um, that's identified, uh, by his correspondent. Uh, he says, I could not help imagining that I would ultimately find myself a visitor at a sophisticated research facility of some kind, a shining labyrinth of the most innovative devices and apparatus of extraordinary complexity. This is all, um, very consistent with his experience and with the, um, with the, the, the character and quality of his correspondence in the sciences, in the, um, that he keep, that he keeps close notes on and um, and and tracks very scrupulously in his own writing he discovers though that it's not a it's not a glittering and sprawling laboratory that is waiting for him at the address specified in his instructions instead uh, he arrives at a large decrepit building and uh, he <laughs> He finds a small door at the end of a dark and narrow alley that ran along the side of the old building. I opened the door and stepped inside, barely able to see two paces in front of me, for by now it was the middle of the night. There was a faint click as the door closed behind my back, and all I could do was wait for my eyesight to adjust to the darkness. He finally, he goes on, Moonlight shone down through a window somewhere above me and spread dimly across a dirty concrete floor. I could see that I was standing at the bottom of an empty stairwell. <laughs> is, and then this is what makes me just fucking love this story. <laughs> he's, come to, he's come to receive news of uh, the, this, uh, this, un, this unexpected, unprecedented scientific breakthrough. The Discovery of the True Origins of All Existential Phenomena. So, he says, I heard faint sounds of something dragging itself directly toward me. <laughs> then I saw... <sighs> this is, I just can You know, I keep reading this. Reading this on the airplane, this guy at the bottom of the stairwell, I kept imagining the priest describing the arrival at the top of the escalator. But this is Ligati here. Back to Ligotti. He says, Then I saw what it was that had emerged from a shadowy area of that empty stairwell. (laughs) It was a head. It was a head, supported by a short length of neck, on which it pulled itself along like a snail moving by inches upon the concrete floor its features were indistinct <laughs> its features were indistinct yet nonetheless seemed deformed or mutilated and it was making sounds whose meaning i could not comprehend its angular jaw opening and closing mechanically and he discovers that there's something else down there with him not much larger than the head that was approaching me across the floor, this other object was to my eyes an almost wholly shapeless mass, quite pale, which I was able to identify as animated tissue only because, every so often, it opened up itself up like a giant bivalved mollusk found at great suboceanic depths and it made the same sound as the crawling head was making both of them crying out at the bottom of that dim and empty stairwell the place i had been for the place i had been informed where i might confront the source of all existential phenomena there's the story goes on a little while longer but it just seems to me it just seems perfect it just seemed i read it and it it made me laugh in my in my comfort plus airplane seat, and I, and I looked at the lady sitting next to me in her pink Beats by Dre over ear headphones, and I looked to my right at the, at the, at the emergency exit door and the giant silver uh, handle that I had watched one of the uh, stewards uh, switch to the armed position. Informing me that if I were to pull on it, it would, it would rip a panel off the side of the airplane as we were flying thousands of feet above the air. And I, I thought this, this not the, not the, not the pretty subs- obscene fucking metaphor, not his claim that, uh, that, that the dead can do, can do much more for us in heaven than they could ever do for us on earth. Not any of that. Not even the fucking Eucharist. But but this this moment in this story where the where, where the Legadian Soren wheeler, where the science journalist arrives at the bottom of this dirty concrete stairwell, and and he's confronted by this this independently animated creaking head dragging itself on its neck like a snail across the dirty floor. Toward this this shapeless fleshy mollusk creature, uh, both of them both of them crying out to each other in indecipherable terms, and I thought this is what rings true, and not no, Elijah, not, because I think that uh, the universe at, at its bottom is a hideous and senseless nightmare. No, it is not that I believe that which I do that makes me respond with such, with such delighted recognition to this image. It's not this confrontation with Boshian uh, visions of hell at the bottom of a dirty stairwell, it's not that this uh, all reflects my beliefs about uh, existence at large. It's that it is the answer. It is the payoff. It is the redemption of the promise he was made by his scientific friends, that he was going to receive the answers to it all. That, that is what makes this ring true. That's what makes it ring so much truer than the priest's despicable promises, or even the heartwarming ending of the Hulu limited TV series uh, adapted from the feel-good contemporary novel by the former men's magazine celebrity profiler. This The correspondence between the promise of a clear, defined, provable, repeatable, measurable, fundamentally reliable answer to it all. The pairing of that promise with an experience of absolute, childlike, uncanny horror. At the end of this fucking week, at the end of this insane trip, at the end of seven nights in a row of uh, uh, critically insufficient sleep, That is what finally made me feel like something at last actually made fucking sense. Alright, I guess I should actually start the fucking show. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. Uh, And thank you especially if you've taken a moment sometime this week to recommend... show to a friend. I really appreciate it. uh, That is, you are our uh, our advertising plan, much to uh, Brian's chagrin. Thank you also to everyone who already subscribes to The Secret Show. It's been a lot of fun lately. There's a lot of stuff there that just doesn't end up fitting on the main feed and I think if you have a, if there's a, you know, people have different kinds of sweet tooth for certain shows we do, but if you have a certain kind of sweet tooth for, for <laughs> I'm not really quite sure how to characterize it, there's stuff you'll get there that you won't get elsewhere. Uh, I also, and I you can tell me if this is too much of a dick move, but I've got so much stuff in the can right now that I'm thinking, I had a really good conversation with Stephen Marsh, the... Uh, pro- probably the most famous person I've had on here, I guess, in like strict terms. He uh, he wrote a book on writing and failure, which was really fun and which I enjoyed, and which I, I did sort of disagree with. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that today. But I'm thinking because there's so many other so many other episodes I want to finally release that I've just had sitting there, I'm thinking I might just release his in its entirety on the secret show feed. Again, let me know if that's too shitty a thing to do. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, the secret show is pretty cheap and pretty good for it's pretty pretty decent. Uh, you get your money's worth. And uh, two other points. One, if you uh, if money is a real problem for you when it comes to this kind of thing, send me a note. I'll will we will come to some well, I'll, I'll help you out. Send me a note. If that's a problem, you know, don't 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 fret. Uh, also, if you are rich, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but if you are rich, we have a special option just for you. Uh, some of the some of the subscribers have have availed themselves of this. I am deeply grateful to all of you, uh, but but you know, but <laughs> but I'm especially grateful to those of you who who subscribe to the Secret Show at the rich person level. It is actually, it's, it is technically called the motherfucker of the arts level. And for, for those of you who are motherfuckers of the arts, I am, my heart, my heart truly is yours. Uh, and the more the merrier. You're all, you are all welcome to become motherfuckers of the arts. Uh, or just send me a fucking email and I will help you out if that's your deal. But uh, do subscribe to the secret show. I. I always give uh, Matt Wall grief in my mind when I have to skip ahead a bunch because he has like a 16 minute intro to every episode, but so I'll I'll quit with this one now. I have been meaning to make this particular episode for a while. (laughs) It's an episode, I've wanted to make an episode about meaning and as much about meaninglessness as meaning. But as you could probably tell by the previous 40 minutes, 40, is it more than that at this point? 40 minutes, yeah, I think it's 40 minutes. Uh, I, um, like legendary lesbian activist folk singer Ani DeFranco said as after she released an album full of apolitical love songs to a straight man, uh, she <laughs> Uh, I got I got a little distracted. But I have wanted to release this episode for a while, and and I have had so many different ideas and so many different poems I wanted to talk about that I, I finally decided the way to solve this problem, rather than waiting until I had a comprehensive plan, was just to do what uh, Borges used to do. In fact, the story is, and if the story is false or some details of it happen to be false, don't correct my mistake because I just, I want to believe it so badly. When he was 40 and he had not yet begun writing, he said, or writing, you know, fiction, he said, you know, I always wanted to write these these epic novels with really sprawling uh, plots and philosophical digressions. And he, he realized one day that he was never going to get around to actually writing them. And so instead he decided he would just imagine that he had already written them and then write an article summarizing the, the highlights. So so that is, I think, what I'm going to do with this episode. This episode on meaning, this this sprawling epic episode on meaning that I have never actually figured out how to make. I'm just going to summarize it for you and then give you a few of the poems that I thought might help illustrate uh, the stuff I was getting at. So to start with, I want to talk about Richard Corey, fictional rich man, hero of Edwin Arlington Robinson's eponymous poem, Richard Corey, as well as the... Uh, the, the hit song, Richard Corey by Simon and Garfunkel, by Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. This is Richard Corey by Edwin Arlington Robinson. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Cory one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. So on the one hand, this is a relatively straightforward poem. Richard Corey is a rich man, everybody looks up to him. They all wish they were him, uh, but actually Richard Corey uh, uh, had, uh, had, had other problems and he, he killed himself. The man everybody wished that they could become uh, didn't want himself to be a person any longer. Or didn't want to be himself at least. There is a reading of this poem. I don't think it's uh, Robinson's reading, and I don't actually even think it's it's Simon and Garfunkel's reading because they're they're so they rewrote the poem basically. I mean, they take they took the general outlines of it, but they really wrote their own words. Yeah, I think the only line they kept really intact was the last line. I think that's. Yeah, I think pretty much. Otherwise, it was it's all paraphrased. But yeah, they say that Richard Cory owns one half of this whole town with poli- with political connections to spread his wealth around. Born into society, a banker's only child, he had everything a man could want: power, grace, and style. But I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish that I could be blah 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 blah. I wish that I could be R- Richard Cory. So, uh, the 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 the, the verses. Uh, catalog all of the triumphs of Richard Corey, the rumors of his parties and the orgies on his yacht, um, and then the the chorus rehearses the, the the misery of the speaker and all of the the people of the town, uh, the people on the pavement, as Robinson calls them. Um, a a note that I think is not not insignificant about this song is that after the final verse. So my mind was filled with wonder when the evening headlines read, Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet through his head. Um, you do kind of wonder, <laughs> this seems like sort of a verbose headline, you know, usually headlines are a little more compressed than that. Uh, but it's after that final verse, when the the people on the pavement have, have come to realize that their illusions about Richard Corey are in fact, uh, just that—that that really, there was something happening, you know, deep within him that was uh, that caused him great pain. Even after that, they repeat the chorus. But I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish that I could be. Oh, I wish that I could be Richard Cory. That's how the song ends, and that I think is exactly right. I think Simon and Garfunkel are actually. I think they actually hit the nail on the head because this poem, Richard Corey, is not about the man, Richard Corey. It's certainly not about the experience of being Richard Corey. It's about the experience of seeing Richard Corey, of thinking about him from the outside. And I think that there is this reading. And it's, so this is a point where I should say, Stephen Marsh in our conversation was unbelievably generous. He was he was free and easy and funny and smart, and he had a lot to say about failure in writing. He he wrote a very you know entertaining book on the subject, and he also um, you know, <laughs> charitably jumped in and said plenty about all of his writing, all the writing he's done on on AI and 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 AI, particularly composition, literary composition. It is that was a conversation that made me want to put a bullet through my head, <laughs> but but he was great. I mean, he was really could not have been. A nicer or more generous interview, but I do think there's a there's there's a kind of argument that he makes in his book on failure that he's not alone in making. It's one I, I've heard a number of different places, and I think often when this poem has been when I when I've heard heard this poem presented in public, it's sort of like the the unbelievably snotty science professor who 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 told us at at the at the commencement for my graduation from Johns Hopkins the it was a a science professor gave a oh you know what maybe it was Ryan because I think I skipped my own commencement I think it was at Ryan's commencement the 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 keynote speaker was a Hopkins science professor who gave a whole talk about the uh about the road less traveled as she put it which is of course not the title of Frost's poem and her interpretation which is very common was that the, the, you know, the moral of the story is that you should do the thing other people aren't willing to do. And, and then the greater moral of her speech, because it was, this was a, this is a commencement ceremony for uh, people getting graduate degrees in the humanities. And they brought in a science professor from Johns Hopkins to give a speech, the moral of which was, hey, it may seem like you've gotten a degree that is, that is you know, in something utterly useless, and frivolous but in fact you you know just as I put the the Robert Frost poem that I so profoundly misread above my desk so I could look at it and be inspired wrongly by it every day when I go to work at the science factory you too could write a poem that some other scientist could read and then be moved to do her actually important work in the world so that was that was her moral to all of us humanities uh, students Um, I think this poem similarly is frequently misunderstood or misinterpreted. First, you know, I tend to think like neither Robinson nor Frost would have wanted anyone to, to do the work of drawing a lesson from his poem, or at least would not want that to be the primary activity taken. I I think, you know, here's where I think Elijah and I may really disagree. And we get into that actually. One of the, one of the many episodes I really want to fucking put out there, uh, I, I, I think that reading poems morally is usually a mistake. I think it is certainly a mistake in this case, but I think specifically the moral that people tend to extract from this poem is is really the wrong one. Right? The moral people tend to extract from this poem is, aha, well, you never know what's going on in someone else's life. And so you, who in this poem, right, we're told uh, the the people on the pavement worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread, right? Or in the, the Sarman and Garfunkel um, song, even more harshly, they say, I curse the life I'm living and I curse my poverty, right? And in both cases, they wish they could be Richard Corey. The moral people tend to extract from this poem is, ah, but you, you're only cursing your life because you don't know any better. You think that if you were Richard Corey, you would be happy, but in fact, In fact, if you were Richard Corey, you too would be miserable. And so you're wrong to curse your life and you're wrong to curse your poverty and you're wrong to think that you you would rather be someone else because, in fact, he is just as miserable as you are. Aha! And that is the shittiest moral I've ever heard in my fucking life. And I think it's completely fucking backwards. I think this is why Simon and Garfunkel are totally, totally on point when they end their song with the same chorus. After reporting that Richard Corey has killed himself, they then say, and I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, I wish that I could be Richard Corey, because again, this is not a poem about Richard Corey. This is a poem about the people on the pavement and their experience from a distance. And I I actually don't know that it's quite right to say, you know, if we are going to try to extract a moral from this, this poem or this song, I don't know that it would be quite right to say oh, the moral is that, that we don't, there's something we don't know about Richard Corey. I, I think, you know, you could make a, at least, well, let me put it this way. I think the, the, the moral of Simon and Garfunkel's song, which is which is like a, a good deal more rhetorically straightforward, let's say, than Robinson's poem, which is a little subtler and has some sort of nice nuances where, you know, he has these, these, he has these funny little to be sure qualifications. He says, he was always quietly arrayed and he was always human when he talked. I love that line. He was always human when he talked. There's so much there's so much that's framed so carefully there. But he still fluttered pulses when he said good morning and he glittered when he walked. Those pulses fluttered, that sensation. That's not happening in his body. That's happening in the bodies of the people who talk to him, presumably the the women or the the men who find him attractive. Uh, among other things. But I do think we could very easily say that the moral of the Simon and Garfunkel song, to the extent to which it has a moral, which probably is you know greater than the extent to which the poem does, the moral there is that, no, it's not that there's something about Richard Corey's life that we don't know. Actually, there's something about Richard Corey's life that he doesn't know. And that's why we are actually right to say, I wish that I could be Richard Corey. And maybe the problem is not that if we were Richard Corey, we would also be miserable. Maybe the problem is that he doesn't realize that if we were Richard Corey, we would be happy. Now, setting that argument aside, because again, morality is not my favorite lens for reading any kind of art. Um, I, I think that the, I am as irritated at this point by this line of argument, right? Ah, but the people who are more successful and you guess what? they are looking up at the people across the street from them and, and wondering why they're not, you know, richer and more successful. And so really you're wrong to wish that you had more. You're wrong to wish, wish that your life were different because if your life were different, you would. the grass would still be greener, right? The problem with saying that the grass is always greener on the far side of the hill is that there's, you know, on sometimes you're right. Like sometimes the grass is greener on the other side of the hill because it's actually greener there. Uh, I tend to think that the Richard Corey argument, the argument that you should never envy someone who has things better than you do, I I think that argument makes about as much sense as the First World Problems argument. This was a routine that I think was was pretty funny back when Louis C.K. was making it about cell phones like 15 years ago. (laughs) But I think it's sort of become almost a a parody of itself. It's another, another. you know, I think the second version of this was, uh, this is, these are white people problems. That is to say, you know, it's a dismissal of certain kinds of complaints because of course we could have it worse, which is true, right? Like we could have it worse. But again, like as plenty of other people have pointed out, like, yeah, you could also have it worse than those people who have it worse than us. And you know who has it really bad? octopuses right like octopuses are sentient and feel pain and fear and mourn their dead and they're still killed and eaten sometimes in some cultures eaten alive purely for pleasure by creatures who know that they're sentient and can feel pain and fear and mourn their dead right so octopuses have it real bad yeah so let's let's in fact none of us should complain about anything the lowliest of the low should complain, you shouldn't complain. Children who are trafficked across uh, borders to work in meat factories, they should not be complaining because octopuses have it worse. So shut up kids. You're taking too long a bathroom break. Uh, Get back to to processing that meat. Um, So yeah, but I I think that's like, I think that's another version of the Richard Cory argument. You shouldn't complain because some people have it worse than you, uh, but also you shouldn't complain because some people have it better than you.